Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you that we can sing that song as a prayer, that newness of life, hope, joy are all possible in you. God, I pray now that as we just are in your word, that this truth that we just sung would even be more and deeply reinforced in the way that we think and the way that we act. God, thank you for the privilege of of joining together in worship and joining in your word this morning. I just pray this in Christ who has the power and has made all things new. In his name, amen. Well, I would ask you to return in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, as Ted read a minute ago, we are uh, on the brink of a new year, and of course, this is always the time of the year where we talk about the fact that people make these New Year's resolutions and, and things like that. And Of course, I was looking and always find it interesting to find what the, uh, the top uh, New Year's resolutions are. I'm sure that you could figure out what the top 10 lists are of New Year's resolutions, but uh, I uh, came across somebody was collecting this data, and this is uh, on the internet, so you know it's true, the top 10 uh, New Year's resolutions every year. Here's what they are. I'll give them to you in case you're just lost and you're looking for some New Year's resolutions. Uh, the number one, of course, would be the most obvious one, lose weight. That's what most people want to do this time of year. Second is to stop smoking, second most popular one. Third is to stick to a budget. Fourth is to save more money. Fifth, find a better job. Sixth, become more organized. Number seven interests me that this is number seven, is exercise more. And the reason why is you would think it'd be closer to number one if, like, number one was lose weight. Why is exercise more way down in the list? But anyways, I'd find that interesting, exercise more. Uh, number eight, be more patient at work and with others. Number nine, eat better. Probably should be up a little higher, too. <laughs> right? This is probably why the New Year's resolutions don't work, right? Can't figure out how to put these in the right order. Number 10, a uh, very generic one, become a better person. In the course of looking these up, I came across a guy who offered a different set of New Year's resolutions. thought this was fascinating. He said this. He said, are you sick of making the same resolutions year after year that you never keep? Why not promise to do something you can actually accomplish? Here are some resolutions that you can use right now. He offered his top eight. Number one, gain weight. <laughs> Aim at 30 pounds. You know, okay? Number two, and you see, he's got this in the right order. Number two, stop exercising. Okay, right? It's a waste of time. Number three, read less. It makes you think. Number four, which really connects to number three, watch more TV, right? You're not watching enough. Number five, procrastinate more, but start that one tomorrow. Okay. Number six, take a vacation to someplace important to like to visit the largest ball of twine. Number seven, stop bringing a lunch from home. You should eat out more. And number eight, get in a whole new rut. Right? Your ruts are just too old to get in a new rut. I thought about those and I thought, you know, that's interesting. You know, and in one sense, I think people, they resonate and they laugh at these things because, you, you know, uh, most of the time, as we know, New Year's resolutions, people don't keep them. But I was thinking about this year, I was thinking about the fact that 
that probably realistically, there probably are a handful of people, maybe even in this room, that say, hey, I'm going to make some commitments this year, make some changes. But I think for a lot of people, the beginning of a new year isn't really like the start of some kind of New Year's resolution for them. I think a lot of times at the beginning of a new year, you're thinking to yourself, I just need to survive this year. Like, I don't even, I'm not even thinking about, like, how to improve my life. I'm just wondering if I'm going to be alive next year. Like, some people can feel that way. They can feel like, I don't know. If I have another year like this past year, I don't know if I can make it. So a lot of, more people probably feel that way this time of the year than, like, hey, I think I'm going to start reading new books or that kind of thing. I think a lot more people feel like life's a little harder than just trying to add some self-improvement to my life. And I was thinking about that this year because I know, you know, years are tough. We had a hard year in our family this year. Lots of things have happened, and, and I know for many of you, you're having hard years, and I was thinking about the fact that maybe our focus this year isn't kind of some self-help moment, which we, Lord willing, will never do here, but, but, you know, some moment of teaching you how to do New Year's resolutions, but instead say, wait a minute, let's stop and think about it. What should we be focusing and thinking about as we enter this new year? What should we be thinking about our life and what should we be thinking about God as we enter in this year? Because life can be hard. And sometimes it's hard just to survive. And yet we also know in the Bible that we're told it's, we should be thriving, we should be growing, all things are new. We have these, these promises and these hopeful statements in the Bible, and yet sometimes there's a disconnect between those two worlds. And I was thinking about the children of Israel, and I was thinking about what it would have been like to have been taken into captivity like they did, to be driven out of their homeland, and to see a third of their nation killed in front of your eyes. And then of the remaining group that's left, two-thirds taken off into exile and being forced to live in another country under a pagan ruler and a pagan king. And, and you think, okay, that's a boatload of problems right there. Right? That's a hard life right there. To have watched a third of your countrymen die and then of the remaining two-thirds are forced to live in a pagan land with a pagan ruler who's a nut anyways. And all of that, and now you're living there. What did God say to those people when they were in exile? What did he tell them? That's what I want us to look at today. And, and instead of setting what, I, what we might call New Year's resolutions today, I was just thinking about what are God's goals for his children as they live? What are his goals? And you'll see today that there's a goal of diligence and a goal of dependence. And, and I want us to see this today. What we're going to do is look at it in context. We'll kind of unpack Jeremiah 29, these first few verses, and then maybe just ask ourselves, what do we learn about God in this process? What do we learn about our life in this process? What, what insights do we have about living? And that's what I want us to do today because I was thinking it might be good for, just for us to have a focus as we engage a new year of how we're going to process this year and how we're going to think about God and ourselves. So let's begin. Let's look at God's goals here for the first area. God's goal that, that deals with daily diligence here. Just follow along. I'm going to read the first few verses of, of 29 here. It says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles 
And to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconi, sorry, and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Gemirah, the son of Hilkah, who came to Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, I doubt those verse 3 is your, anyone's life verse there, but, but there's some very important truths there, okay? And, and here's what I want to do. I want to set the context of what 29 is doing, what's happening in this chapter. Okay, it's a very pivotal chapter in the, in the book of Jeremiah, but you need to understand what happened. The Babylonians have come in. There, we know from uh, the prophet... Um, from the prophets, from the, from the minor prophets, that the Babylonians were the worst army in the history of the world at that point. They were brutal people. And they came into Jerusalem and they just wiped it out, killed off a third of the people, and they did it in the most vicious ways. It was a brutal, bloody war. And so now the nation is left just ravaged. Then the Babylonians do what they did. Is they always grabbed about two-thirds, especially of the young men, and pulled them out of the country and forced them to live everywhere. They just scattered them. So now they're taken from Jerusalem, and I'll use our current countries, and put into Syria and Turkey and Iran and Iraq. Pulled all into that whole region. So now they're displaced. The queen, queen mother, and a few other leaders departed Jerusalem And they went down to Egypt to hide for a while. So you've got no leadership in Israel. The key leaders escaped, made their way to Egypt. The rest of the country, two-thirds of the country that's left after the war is now all, all over the place. And about a third of this remnant is left in Israel. And it's just a shambles. It's a nightmare. Jeremiah's writing a letter. And he's writing this letter, and I want you to notice that as he writes this letter, he writes this letter, and he tells everybody, hey, uh, you need to know what God has to say about this moment. But I want you to notice that this letter wasn't just to the Jews. I want you to notice, if you can find it in there, who did he write the letter? Who, Who received the letter? King Nebuchadnezzar did. So when Jeremiah writes these words... He sends these words not only to the people of Israel, but to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, himself. Subtly reminding Nebuchadnezzar, you do not rule the world. This is God's plan. This is God's plan. You're not in charge here, Nebuchadnezzar. There's a plan. There's an appointed time. The situation is under God's control. God is still God Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is not, right? There's the reality. This situation, if, now if you were in that situation, you would feel like God has no control and Nebuchadnezzar has all the control and you would feel like life really stinks, wouldn't you? I mean, if you think about it, if you watched you know, you know, a third of your, your, your countrymen killed in front of you in a brutal, vicious way and then you were lifted out of that country, placed into another country where you don't speak all the languages there, and, and, and then you're under the rule of a wicked king, you'd be easy to think, okay, God has no control. The God of my life is this problem. 
Because this problem is so big, it's left me stranded with nothing. Be easy to feel that way. Jeremiah subtly sends the letter and says, you know, king, you might feel like you're God, but you're not. You're not. God's in control. Now, this is, now here, there's kind of a good news, bad news letter. The bad news is you're going to be here for a while. But the good news is that God is still God. So that's the context. That's the setting of this moment. Now, let's look at what is said here. Okay, so let's pick it up here in verse 4. Okay, because he's, he's sending this letter. And it says, you know, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to their dreams that they dream. For it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Very interesting. There's very strong words there. I can't imagine hearing those words. I just picture yourself as an exile. Picture yourself having lost family members, killed, murdered in front of you. Picture just this war-torn moment. And then you get this letter, and the letter is from God, and God says, uh, Exiles, I have sent you there. My will for you is to be in Babylon. You'd be easy to think, wait a minute, that cannot be God's will. It cannot be God's will to put us in this wretched place. That's not the God that we serve. But the letter begins, I've sent you into this exile. This is my plan. And there's some things I want you to do. There's, there's, there's a bunch of things I want you to do. Because you see, I don't want you in the moment of this exile to disengage. I don't want you to disengage. Right? I mean, it would be very easy to disengage. And in fact, what was going on at that point? And we'll see it in a minute when he talks about all the dreamers or the prophets that were coming. And he says, don't listen to those prophets. There were all these prophets that were coming around the exiles at this point. And here's what they were saying. This is only going to be for a year. An army's coming. You're going to be delivered. You're going to be delivered. Just, just hold back. This isn't going to last long. You know, it's going to be okay. It's going to happen fast. God's sending these people in, and they were disengaging. Jeremiah comes along and says, don't listen to those guys. You're going to be here 70 years. And I don't want you to disengage. I don't want you to disengage. I understand the desire to disengage. I've had a lot less problems in my life that have made me want to disengage, right? I mean, I haven't had these kind of problems. I've had a lot less problems that have made me want to say, you know, it'd be much better just to sit in my basement and do nothing right now. Right? I mean, a lot less has driven me to disengage than this. So I identify, I don't condemn those exiles. I can't imagine what they went through. But let's look at what he tells them. Because he says, listen, I want you to be stripped down from all of the things you were doing in Jerusalem, and I want you to get back to basics. You're going to set up shop. 
in a foreign land. Four things he tells them to do. First of all, build houses and live in them. That is laying roots, isn't it? You're going to lay roots in a pagan land. Because you're going to be here for a while. So don't live as if this is going to end right away. Don't live as if this is going away. You're going to lay roots here. Yet Jerusalem, Israel, that's the promised land. That's the place God wanted us to be. And now he's got us over here. I thought he wanted us over there. Well, God said, no, I want you here. God is stripping them away of a lot of things, getting them back to basics. Build houses, live in them. Second thing he tells them, plant gardens and eat their produce. If you're planting a garden, that means you're going to be there for a while, right? Because you don't just like put a seed in the ground and the next day up comes the fruit of the seed. You're going to go through seasons. They're going to go through 70 planting and 70 harvest seasons. That's a lot. Some of the people in that land were old enough that they will die there because they're going to be there 70 years. They're never going to go back. They're never going back there. That's what he's saying. Okay, but plant gardens. Third thing, take wives, have sons, daughters, start a family. And when your kids grow up, encourage them to start families. I don't want you to decrease. I don't want you to stop the reality that I have left you here to be fruitful and multiply. I've left you here to have children. I've left you here to have a family. Don't stop. Don't disengage from that. And then the fourth thing, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now think about this for a moment. Of everything that he said, this one to me would be the hardest. Because you see, Babylon has come in to kill you and to dominate you and to attack you and to destroy you. And so it would be very easy in your brain to catalog them as the enemy, right? They're the enemy. And when the enemy comes, resist them, fight them, attack them, hate them, loathe them. They're the enemy, they're the enemy, right? And here's what he's saying. Babylon is not the enemy. Babylon's the mission field. They're not the enemy, they're the mission field. Pray for them. Intercede for them. I always think it's interesting, some people who get kind of all bent out of shape about things going on in America, and they're like, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah, and judgment's coming, it's like Sodom, right? And we kind of are real quick to kind of throw this big, you know, fire coming down from heaven and going to destroy this thing. And yet Abraham, who was there, dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah, had a relative living in that land, he wasn't in heaven saying, or on earth saying, God, pour down fire from heaven onto Babylon or onto Sodom and Gomorrah. What did he do? He prayed and interceded. God, would you spare this place? Would you please spare this? Would you spare it for one righteous person, God? Mercy, intercession. That's what Abraham did. That's what he's saying. Guys, you're in Babylon. They're not the enemy. Intercede for them. Pray for them. And not only that, take it up a step. Seek their good. How can you seek the good of people who hate God? Aren't we enabling them to hate God more? Yet God told them, listen, wherever you are, 
in this Babylonian empire. I want you to walk in and say, how can I be an agent for good? How can I actually improve this pagan place? How can I actually be true salt and light? Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are to have an impact wherever you are. That's what he's saying, salt and light. I've sent you into exile. I sent you there because I want you to pray for these people, and I want you to intercede for these people, and I want you to be a force for good for these people. I want you to benefit it. Now, here's the upside of this. When you seek the welfare of the city and the city gets better, don't you think your life improves? It clearly does. Your life improves. This is what he's saying. They're not the enemy. They're the mission field. Now, here's what you have going here. Well, let's look at verse 8 here, and then we'll kind of make our observations here. Verse 8, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. These are the prophets that are telling them to do otherwise telling them to disengage, telling them to hate, telling them to treat people like the enemy, telling them, tell them to do the exact opposite of those four things. Just do not listen to them. They're not my people. I did not design them. I didn't send them. They are trying to get you to live opposite and counter the will of God. Here's what I find interesting about this, these first set of verses here. It seems as if, the, if you look at kind of the history that led them up to this moment. When they were living in Israel, they had a lot of money. They were treating the poor with contempt. They were becoming greedy, self-centered, self-willed, self-driven. They were living for their own glory. They were living these lifestyles to the point where they had no compassion on people. They were quick to anger, quick to judge, you know, quick to, 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 to absolutely wipe people. It was so bad that the prophets were crying out, God, you've got to help our nation. We've, we've been turned over to this kind of very evil, selfish, self-centered heart. And God said, yes, here's what I'm going to do. I have a plan. Habakkuk was praying this, God, would you intercede? God says, I have a plan. I'm going to send in this really bad army, and they're going to wipe you out, and they're going to send you into exile. Because here's what God was going to do. Strip them away of every single love of this earth. Strip them away of every single pursuit that was evil and wicked and get them back to doing the very thing that he wanted them to do. Raise their family, till the earth, and be salt and light. Stripping away of every love, stripping away of every selfish desire, stripping away of every evil thing that made them live for their own glory, their own wealth, their own stuff. That's what they were living for. He stripped them away and he got them back to basics. Raise your family. Till the land and be salt and light and an ambassador of the mercy of God to this world. And what happened was they could no longer be greedy. They could no longer be selfish. They could no longer fall in love with all the, the, the good of the land. They could no longer be there. That temptation's gone. They have nothing. They've lost all their money. They've lost everything. They have to start over. But they get to start over back to basics. They have no opportunity to succeed. They have no opportunity to grow. They have, all they can do is raise their family, till the earth and be salt and light. 
And until you've been in that situation for 70 years, I'm not letting you back into the land. That's what God says. I want you back to basics. And I realize that that's really the heart of God. What, what I would call daily diligence. Now, before we wrap it up, draw some conclusions, let's look at the next piece. God, God's second goal, which would be dependence. Let's look at this in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, which really I couldn't imagine reading that on day one. You know, like, oh my, 70 years. You know, I mean, reading that at my age, I'd say, I'm never leaving. I'm never going back. This is it. This is home now. This wicked place. can't imagine hearing those words. So when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So on the very you know, beginning of their exile, God tells them three things here in this section. The first thing he tells them is that he is in control. He's in control. You see the control of God, Right? Notice all of these controlling statements. When 70 years are completed, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise. I will bring you back. I, 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 I. No conditional statements. This is going for 70 years. Then I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do this. When, you, when I read that, I actually find a sense of kind of awe and comfort. Awe that this is going to be 70 years if I were in that situation. But comfort in the sense that God is still in control. Even our rebellion doesn't knock him off of his control. Our fighting him and resisting his control doesn't make him stop being in control. God is not like most of the parents I see in the mall. You know, the kids start rebelling and finally the parents go, I give up, I'm done. Right? That isn't God. We can't exasperate God. Our goodness or our rebellion, neither one thwarts God's plans. He had an agenda for this time. He's working his agenda. And that's the end of the story. So, if you're going to really understand how to depend on God, it begins by first understanding that he is in control. But then there's a second thing that you see in verse 11. And it's the character of God. The character of God. Verse 11, very misquoted verse. You hear it a lot. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, the essence of the statement is this. Okay? When you're driven into Babylon, and it looks as if Nebuchadnezzar is won, and thousands of people have been killed, and things are really bad, it could really look as if God's got this really twisted thing going. Kind of like, hey, this is fun. Let's mess with them. Right? It could appear that way. If you're just following this storyline, you would think, wow. You'd be like Habakkuk. If you read the book of Habakkuk, 
Habakkuk lays his concern to God. God, Israel's falling apart. They're living, they're loving sin. And God says, oh, I've got this great plan. I've raised up the worst army in the history of the world. They're going to rape and pillage and destroy you. And Habakkuk says, okay, no. <laughs> That's not you, God, right? You don't raise up big armies to kill people. You just like magically change people's hearts. That's what you do. You get like little fairy dust, right? And, it, and people will change. Oh, yeah, hey, I'm better now. You don't kill people. And God says, be quiet. You're not God. I know what I'm doing. That's what verse 11 says. I know what I'm doing. But what you have to know is this. That even though Babylon really stinks, it's part of my good plan. Don't doubt my character, even if my methods hurt. That's what verse 11 says. Don't doubt my character, even if my methods are painful. Don't doubt my character, even if my methods strip you down to nothing. I know my plan for you, is what he's saying. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly the end of this thing. And I know one thing. This is designed to bring good. Now, what these people would never know at this moment in time is how all of this fits into the plan of God. They would never understand this. They don't understand right now, as they're sitting somewhere. Somebody's reading this letter, and let's say they're sitting in Iraq, and they get this letter, and it's being read to them, and they're like, oh my word, God, I don't understand your plan. And they don't understand that somewhere in the capital is a man by the name of Daniel. And they don't understand that Daniel is being elevated up to be the head of the Magi. And they don't know that Daniel is teaching the Old Testament to these Magi and explaining to them that one is coming. And when he comes, he's going to bring blessing to the world. And that a few hundred years later, magi from this very place are going to make their way into Jerusalem and lay gifts before Jesus. They don't understand. God has a plan. And this exile is directly connected to the coming of the Messiah. But when you're living in Iraq... You don't speak the language, and you've lost your home, and you've lost your aunt, your uncle, and your cousins, and they've been murdered, and you're living in the middle of nothing. It appears as if God's plan doesn't have a good end. And God is reminding them, you have to know my character. I know the plans. I know where I'm taking you. I know the end of the story, and I know it's good. I know it's good. And so he says, first we see God is in control, and then second, God, his character is good. We can trust that his end is a good end. And then that is what causes Israel to call out, because then he says in verse 12, then you will call upon me, and when you pray, I will respond. Now, here's the good news of those statements. All of those statements from 12 all the way down into 14. 
So he's saying this, now here you are, you're freaking out, it's bad, you're doubting, you've got false prophets giving you false messages, you're just in this really bad place right now. But I am in control, and I do know my end is good, and I do know that I'll work that good end, and at some point your eyes are going to see that. At some point you're going to wake up and see that I am a good God, and suddenly you're going to go, God, save me. And God is not going to say, what took you so long? I waited, I told you, I wrote you a letter, and you didn't respond to me. He's not going to respond like you would respond, right? He's not going to respond with our anger. He's going to say, when you call out to me, I will come. When you pray, I will listen. When you seek me, you will find me. I will be found by you, is what he says. I'm going to make myself available. And you know what's going to be cool about this? Eventually, you're going to humble yourself, and you're going to pray, and you're going to call out to me. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore. I'm going to build you up. And blessing's going to come. Because that's how good I am. Even though right now you're doubting, and even though right now you don't understand, and even though right now you're freaking out, and even though right now I'm not going to respond with a tit-for-tat with you. This isn't that kind of situation. I'm so good that eventually, when you stop fighting and call out to me, I will be there. See, a life of daily dependence for them is to recognize God is in control, that his character is good, and when you call out to him, he hears you. That's what he's saying, guys. You've got to get back to this. You've got to get back. This is my world, and I have a really good agenda for this world. So call out to me. So let's wrap it up. What do we do with all of this? God stripped Israel down. They had gotten so caught into their own materialism, caught in their own selfishness, caught in their own agenda, caught in their own vision for their world, that they lost sight of what God wanted for them. They lost sight of the fact that God wanted them to invest into their families. They lost sight of the fact that they were to till the earth. They lost sight of the fact that they were to be salt and light to make a difference in this world. They lost sight of the fact that it's God's world and he's in control. They lost sight of the fact that God is good and that he's worthy to be called on. They lost sight of all of that. And God was so gracious to remove every single thing from their life to get them back to this point where they could recognize this is the diligence and this is the dependence that I should be focusing my attention on. When I think about this, I think about the fact that these are not just, this isn't just some Old Testament story for set in a particular context. As I was studying this, my mind came to two chapters of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. Those two passages came to my mind. And the reason why they came to my mind is that in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's talking to the exiles there, right? And they're beginning to get persecution. And he says, I want you to live godly in front of these people. So that when they see your godliness, they'll worship Jesus when he returns. They'll worship Jesus when he returns. They're not going to worship him now, probably. And they're going to keep punishing you. But when he returns... Worship will be given to Jesus. So, so let's start that, the eternal worship service now by living godly. He tells them that. 
And Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, said, Now, church, I want you to pray for the kings. I want you to intercede for people. Because, you see, God wants us to intercede. Because if they can bring peace, and if they're, if they're living and, and ruling in a peaceful way, the gospel can spread. Intercede for these people. That call of this heartbeat that God is driving into these people is actually a thread through the whole of the Scriptures. The problem with us is that we allow so many things to get in the way. Other loves, other diligence, other pursuits. We depend upon ourselves, not on God. We live for materialism. We live for goods. We live for our own comfort. We live for having things our way. You know, the things that make us mad is when people interrupt what we want out of life, right? Because that's what we live for. That's the idol we serve. And sometimes God puts us through situations where he strips away all of our loves for this world and leaves us with what? Back to basics. God, I want to serve you. I want to till the land. I want to be salt and light. I trust that you're good. And I was thinking those are probably some really good goals for us this year. Good goals. Let's just get back to what he wants us to be. God is in control, so let's surrender to that. God is good. Let's trust that. And therefore, we can call upon him and depend upon him. And then if he's removed all the other things of our life and all we're left with is our family and our job and a bunch of pagan people, that's probably a good place to be. Love your family. Till the earth. And thank God that he surrounded you with a bunch of wicked people that you can be salt and light to. That's what he wants. Everything else gets in the way of that. So why don't we just pray to that end? It's a challenge for me to think about that. But why don't we just pray? God, I know the tough times will come, but let's just pray. God, just sustain us in this. So just bow your head with me. Lord, I, I have never, ever really prayed for trials to come, and, and, I'm, and I'm not doing that. But you see fit to bring us through whatever you choose to bring us through. You control the agenda. And so, God, I don't want to mess with that, but we need help. We need help because we fight for the things that aren't important. And we hold on to things that we shouldn't hold on to. And we love things that aren't right. And we lose sight of the fact that you've made it very simple to live in this earth, to invest into the next generation. And to be salt and light in our community. God, we can do that because you're in control. The, the, the paganism of our culture isn't in control. Congress isn't in ultimate control. No one's in ultimate control but you. You write the letters to Nebuchadnezzar. You tell him how long the exiles are going to last. You're in control, God. So I pray that we would trust that. And I pray that we would remember that you're good. And sometimes this, the pruning is painful. 
But it's not done out of spite. It's, it's done out of focusing us. You know the end result is what is going to benefit us to bring glory to you. And you're merciful. And we don't have to be afraid to call, up, call out upon you, even if this whole past year we've been resisting you and fighting you. And so I pray, God, that we would remember your mercy. And when we call, you listen. And that's true not just here in, in, in this moment in Jeremiah, but through all the scriptures. God, help us to reset our goals this year so that we could walk in peace and that the burden would be lifted and that we could trust and depend on you as we faithfully execute what you've called us to execute. And God, may this time next year be a, a Sunday of testimony to the fact that you heard our prayers and you answered them. In Christ's name, amen.